Let's Get Two presents... Five, four, three, two, one... Pitch is lifted to right by Cassianos. Long run for Tucker over toward the line and foul territory. Makes the catch and the Houston Astros do it again. 2022 World Series champions. And now, go, go Astros. Astros baseball from three guys who've been there since Art Howe had hair. And welcome. Good morning, everybody. We are getting ever so close to pitchers and catchers reporting. This is GoGo Astros. With us, as always, is the best hair in Houston, Texas, Andy Tom Chesson. Good morning. Good morning, Jim. How are you? Um, fantastic. I get to see your face this morning. And the best goatee in New York is with us. Brian Arbor, how are you? Good. And pitchers and catchers report on uh, February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day to us all. That's also awesome. That's weird. It's Ash Wednesday, Valentine's Day, and Pitchers and Catchers Report. And the beginning of the Austin Revolution Film Festival. Those of you who are in town and want to come see some good indie films, by all means, come checking out. Now, Pitchers and Catchers reporting. Unfortunately, one pitcher that is not reporting will be Billy Wagner to the Hall of Fame. Uh, we are going to jump into this pretty hardcore. Um, I'm going to start with Andy on this, though. Andy, to me, this feels the most, like the most prevalent example of that kind of anti-Houston, we don't matter because we're not on a coast ball team. Because I think of any of the Astros that are that have been in the Hall of Fame, he might be the most clear-cut, yes, he deserves to be in player, and yet uh, he missed again. I know he'll probably make it next year, but but I, th- I think it. I think if he, if he played for New York, he'd have been in three years ago. Well, I mean, he did play for New York. And yeah. Philadelphia, for that matter. Um, so he he checks some of those East Coast boxes, although I don't know that anybody in New York necessarily cares about what happens in Philadelphia. Brian, you can probably confirm that. It's like <laughs> They care that bad things happen in Philadelphia. So, you know, no wonder they don't like them. Uh, and even through, you know, for a, a minute in Boston in 2009. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, – I, I think it is the last dying gas of the old school baseball writer. The old school baseball writer tends to believe that relievers aren't worth anything unless, again, you pitch for the Yankees and then you're Mariana Rivera and you're the only player ever to get 100% of the the ballot. That's the only player ever. So it's weird to say there's a bias against relievers when that happened that one time, but you see this come up every few years where you have a very well-qualified reliever and there's this argument still about, well, how valuable is a reliever really? Um, and you look at the way baseball is played really for the last 25 years, 30 years, and closers are an integral part of how we win baseball games in Major League Baseball these days. This isn't a new development. This isn't something that just happened in the last decade. Um, 
and so it's weird. Um, yeah, I do think if Billy Wagner played for the Dodgers or played for the Yankees or played longer for the Mets at the beginning of his career when he was more dominant, he would already be in. Um, I think he gets in next year. You know, the other part of this entire system, the um, variables uh, always frustrate me because he lost like five votes, I think, last year from guys that thought he was eligible last year but didn't think he was eligible this year. And those are the same five votes that would have put him in this year. So it's just there's no consistency. And most of us as Americans are kind of pre-programmed to kind of rail against things we think are unfair and are inconsistent and not predictable. Um, this is one of those things that I think is very unfortunate uh, for Billy Wagner. I think he gets in next year, but it's got to be a gut punch after a while. I know um, when back Jeff Bagwell was going through something similar, it got to the point, well, if they vote me in, great. If they don't, I don't even care anymore. Um, so I hope it works out the same for Wagner because they do care. It is a big deal. And when you've performed at a high level for so long and arguably are the best left-handed reliever in the history of baseball, and not a short time period, um, you should be in. With numbers that are very, very close to Mariano Rivera and actually surpassing Trevor Hoffman, who is in, um, in a lot of key, um, a lot of key measures, Brian. Overall, like, what do you? Why do you think he didn't get in? Do you think it's this bias thing? I mean, what are, what is your overall take? Before we kind of dive a little further into it, on Wags going to have to wait till year ten, his final year on the ballot. Yeah, I mean, Andy's right that relief is really important. They also don't pitch a lot, and so and Wagner's pitched less than some of the other Hall of Fame relievers. And there's only a handful of relievers in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Wagner is six all time in saves. And so that's well, pretty impressive. On the other hand, he's about he's uh, 230 behind Rivera and like 190 below Hoffman. They got in because, well, they are, were both the all time leader in saves. Wagner's case is a little more difficult because he didn't pitch as long as either one of those guys. He pitched uh, just over 900 innings. So he pitched four seasons for a good starter. Um, but of course, they're pretty much all high leverage innings, and they're sort of really important. I don't think it's a bias against Houston. Maybe I'm just sort of naive, but you know, it's mostly a bias against relievers. And you know, I do think he'll get in next year because there is a last year push. I mean, so some of this, I think, collectively, Hall of Fame voters make pretty much good decisions. There hasn't been a decision, uh, someone they've let in who I've disagreed with since I think Jim Rice. That being said, individual ballots are, as, as Andy says, can be maddeningly frustrating. And, you know, part of that is there's a handful of voters who were like, if I voted for 10 guys every year, we put 10 guys in the hall every year. It's like, no, we keep voting for this. You keep voting for the same 10. Everyone else has to vote for the same 10 guys because you don't do that. But the people who sort of keep the hall down to two or three per year, that's fine in sort of one sense, but hey, they need to recognize that, you know, it's last year on the ballot. There's a long tradition of the guys last year on the ballot uh, bumping up. And we saw that like Gary Sheffield had the biggest bump uh, this year in large part because it was his last year on the ballot, though he didn't get him in. Well, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the writers and their responsibilities. We're going to double back to this um Houston bias. I don't think it's a Houston bias for this particular vote of the Hall of Fame. I think it's a Houston bias 
and what we've seen and how baseball has been covered for 30 to 35 years. But we'll dive into that for a second. But, you know, you do have what Andy talked about, guy, like he was good enough one year, not good enough another. Heyman said he's not voting for him again, but he hopes he gets in. Um, how do we how do we fix the system where there becomes again the NFL does it right? There seems to be a clear standard of how many people get in every year, and and there's a there's a a much more um, conservative, I guess, way of doing things versus it's all over the place with baseball. I, I don't know if you wanted me to go first, yeah, but I, I think there's this weird acknowledgement that baseball has grown over time and we didn't have an expanded since 1998. That was the last MLB expansion year. Um, but I think a lot of the way that the hall of fame voting developed was when there were 16 teams and you had this idea that a sports writer could legitimately see everybody in his league. And if they wrote New York, they could literally see everybody because both leagues cycled through there every year, multiple times a year. And as you've gotten more and more teams and fewer and fewer writers, because journalism is a dying breed, you've got this kind of archaic system of voting where I sit in New York and I watch the highlights, but I really only know who ESPN tells me unless I really, really am a baseball head. And there's very few of those guys left. Uh, and we can name them because we all follow them on Twitter. But those yeah. guys are the same ones that do a lot of the gatekeeping, like John Heyman. Um it's not a bias against Houston. I don't think that particularly exists here. I think it's a bias against, I've never seen this guy and I've never seen this guy. And I, I heard he was good, but I never bothered to but watch him. But is it him. not seeing this guy at the root of the bias against Houston that I'm talking about? The fact that. But I don't think it's unique. To, I don't think it's a bias against Houston because I don't think it's unique to Houston. I think the Texas Rangers would have the exact same problem. If Billy Wagner pitched primarily for him. I think that if he pitched primarily in Kansas city, it'd be the same thing. I think on some level, if it was the White Sox instead of the Cubs, he had had the same issue. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily, again, Houston that we're picking on, although it does feel that way sometimes. I think in this particular instance, it's he didn't pitch the bulk of his career when he was at his best on the coasts, and that's a problem because that's who baseball writers primarily are these days. Brian, um, I want to go back to the statue threw out there because, yeah, you're right on the two stats you named, but for a guy whose job on this show is to go inside the numbers, you kind of didn't do that with him because his strikeouts per nine are superior to Trevor Hoffman. A lot of his other buried numbers that you would use to project success, uh, you sort of conveniently ignored in this discussion. Yes, because I'm trying to explain the votes of Hall of Fame voters. What I'm asking Barber at this point. I understand. Well, but, but, you know, analyzing the Hall of Fame vote. I mean, so there are two things that I think. And so my biggest frustration is when I look at this guy's like, I don't know who this guy is. And then I go look up their Twitter feed and I haven't commented on baseball since October. <laughs> right. Like, you know, you're a columnist who writes general stuff and you've got, you know, 1600 things recently about the NFL. Why do you get to decide? I mean, the, 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 you know, that that's, that's the ones that most sort of, I mean, including, look, I wouldn't vote with John Heyman, but John Heyman knows baseball, you know, and so there are times I think he doesn't, right? But, you know, You're right. this is sort of what he's, you know, dedicated his knowledge to. And it gets to a secondary issue, which is a two, I wrote a couple times in my sub stack about uh, Chase Utley. 
And part is Chase Utley's Caseville Hall of Fame is if you understand sabermetric numbers, if you understand the game the way that it is moving to in analytics, Chase Utley has a really good that's that's Chase Utley's case. He's a really good defender, even though they decided not to give him glove, uh, gold gloves, even though he was the best second baseman um, at that time, the best defensive second baseman at the time. He's got great base running numbers because uh, he'd go from first to third. All the stuff that's supposed to be really important to the play the game the right way, people. Um, and so I contrasted that to Omar Vizquel, whose case is he won a lot of gold gloves and he hung around for a really long time, even though he was never all that good in any individual year. And so sometimes these voters look at very sort of different things. It depends on this. The good news is that the electorate is changing. A couple of years ago, they got rid of a whole bunch of people who no longer were writing about baseball because a lot of them decided, I want to make a stand about a sport I don't care about. You have a column for that. That's fine. Yeah. Please write it, but don't have actual impact on something that baseball people think matters. Um, and then the second part of it is, right, as younger voters, and I will say better voters, because if you look at, you know, if you look at, um, like Jason Stark had a really great column talking about how I have changed the way I've thought about voting at the Hall of Fame over time in large part because so many more numbers have come out, so many more this, and some of this is like, I'm covering the game, you know. He's an old school guy. But he's learned and changed in part because he knows that, you know, this is teams care about this stuff. This is the way they understand value. This is how they're they're making decisions. Hey, the Hall of Fame. Look, here's the other. I guess the most important thing to note is you have to get 75 percent of people to agree on something. It's <laughs> right. unclear to me you can get 75 percent of the people to agree that it's Monday. Yeah, I almost so wish they could do it. you have to get this really broad consensus. And that's. I think like seven seven players got a majority of the vote in the hall this year, but of course only three get in. Because again, yeah, I think one of the things that could fix in eighty two is saying you if you're a voter you have to vote for X number of people. You got to pick five people because how many times do we see it where people will turn in a ballot with nobody checked or just the one guy? Like it it seems to me, um, and maybe there should be a gatekeeper to who gets on the ballot in the first place, but it just seems there to. Is. That, there, there is. Yeah, you have to play ten years. You have. Yeah. There, there are certain milestones a player has to check. Well, I know, but it could be even further ones. But go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you the, off. The, the voters are the issue. Uh, I mean, the voters have always been the issue. Uh, you've got a system that allowed for a while somebody like John Lopez in Houston to have a vote, who occasionally wrote about baseball, and he used that vote in two thousand one to vote for Jim Deshays. You want to know how many other votes Jim Deshays got? One. One. Um, it was John Lopez, and he admitted it was a joke, but I wasn't give my buddy a vote. And you have some of that. There's so many layers of just writers who take it too seriously and overthink things, writers who don't take it seriously enough, writers who in the current climate cover four major sports and probably a college to keep their jobs and yeah. don't pay enough attention anymore. Um, it's it, The Hall of Fame in and of itself is not a bad thing. The process to get in isn't a bad thing. The way that they vote for those players is flawed and doesn't work in 2024. Almost said 2023. And there was even that the year a couple of years ago where Verlander. All the votes were cast in 2023. You'd be fine. Okay, good. Deadline was December 31st. But we had, you know, we had, um, 
I mean, there's the famous Kate Upton. I'm sorry, I was the only one who thought I thought I could be the only one who could fuck Justin Verlander, where he was like number one on so many ballots for the Cy Young and then got none on a couple of others. You're right. There's a couple of petty things going on. A couple of quick questions before we dive into Brian's last substack, though. Um, okay. A-Rod, no votes. Are we going to see A-Rod? Are we going to see um, any of those guys from that era make the Hall of Fame at all? And then second question, Brian, we'll start with you. Are Can we expect to see these same debates with Altuve when it's time for his turn to, to get voted in and come up? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the, there are two answers to the A-Rod question, and it's also the Barry Bonds and the Roger Clemens question, which is it's very clear there's no appetite to put them in now. But the second answer to that is ever is a really long time. And we all know that, you know, Barry Bonds was the best player any of us saw with our own eyes. Mm -hmm. You're our age. Um, and um, Roger Clemens has an argument to be the best pitcher of all time. That's based on sort of the idea that all players are better today uh, than they ever were. Um, so is it incomplete without that? Yeah, I think so. And I'm going to go to I'm going to go to Cooperstown this summer. Um, you know, but it's still, you know, go in that black room and it matters, right? Um, that on Altuve, again, the test case here is Carlos Beltran, who is, I think most people think a Hall of Famer. Beltran's an interesting case, right? Because there's no sort of like, what did Beltran do well? What did Beltran do excellently? Nothing. What did Beltran do well? Everything. Mm -hmm. So those guys usually don't get in the first ballot. It takes some effort there. He rose, uh, he got, he's the only guy who got 10% greater in this year's ballot than last year's ballot, which indicates that whatever penalty there was, you know, and is for sign stealing and being involved with that is mostly a one-year penalty and likely is not going to keep him out of the Hall of Fame. Uh, of course, as we know, Carlos Beltran led that effort. And was one of the real indicators of that effort. Jose Altuve is a guy who said, you know, you go ahead. You're fine. I don't need to do that. And Andy, like to Brian's point, at least the sport, most sports writers will will agree that that was the case. I know fans don't want to hear it, but I, I've seen Passan. I've seen all kinds of people defending Altuve in the media as well. What, what it's going to take is whoever the Jeff Passan or the John Heyman or whoever the writer, the, the most influential writers at that time are going to have to take up that torch where Altuve will suffer when he is eligible for Hall of Fame is the writers who remain silent about the reality of what was going on and just let John Bohunk from Kansas City, who um, covers the Wildcats all year long and also happens to have a Hall of Fame vote, um, decide that he's really angry about science dealing that week. I mean, that, and that's how silly the voting is. So that that's where I worry for Altuve. I think Altuve gets in. I think Beltran gets in, frankly. I think 57% in your second year shows the track yeah. that you need to. Yeah. And if he gets in, it's really hard to argue that Altuve shouldn't get in. Um, people will still Hall make of fame voting. Hall of Fame voting is weird because you shouldn't need this long time process. But hey, if you look at Todd Helton, who started out with something like 12% of the vote, over seven years, he rose up and We'll see where Altuve ends up, but he's likely to have a better Hall of Fame case than Todd Helton. Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk bias against Houston, Lance Berkman is your test case, not Billy Wagner. To get back to that, uh, Lance Berkman should have gotten more than one year on the ballot. Yeah, that was um, 
I'll go with this real big bias against Houston. Johan Santana, who the Astros lost in the Rule 5 draft, definitely should have gotten one more year on the ballot. Yep. More than one year on the ballot. Let's not discuss the team's worst mistakes ever. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, we got one of those mistakes back at least. Hopefully it'll work out. Um, Brian, I want to talk to you a little bit about your sub stack. So we'll go with you first. And you basically took the Zips projections and uh, essentially – what I took from your article was the Astros are the safe bet to, to, to choose in the West, but of the two teams, the Rangers have um, the bigger prop, the bigger probability to overcome their projection. Talk to me a little bit about just where you got those numbers and how that all comes together and your overall thoughts on the piece. Sure. Uh, Zips is one of several projection systems, which they look at players and say, you know, and it's, Pretty easy with veteran players, right? Guys like Atuba, who we talked about, or Alex Bregman, you know, players who have track records. Well, they're kind of going to be like what they are, what they've been the last couple of years, the next year. It's a little harder with younger players because, of course, we have much less data to put in the system. And part of what uh, Zips does, it's run by a guy named Dan Zimborski, um, and he publishes an article on each team at Fangraphs, and they're great to look at and a nice good review. And they've got this nice little graphic that puts, you know, all the positions across the diamond. And the thing you, I noticed in looking at the Astros article and the Rangers article is, boy, the Astros look even sort of stronger than I think the sort of consensus is, which is, and of course, what happened in 2023, which is the teams are really even. And the reason for that is the Astros have more star level players than the Rangers do. And so they look really strong in left field, combination of Jordan and Chaz, third base, right field, second base, and then a DH when uh, Jordan's there. And then the other part is the Astros have the best pitcher among the two teams, which is Framber Valdez. And then actually, if you look at the rest of their starting rotation, they look really similar. And you've got guys with lots of sort of similar sort of uh, projected numbers, including you know guys who are supposed to come back uh, injury in the middle in the middle of the season in both teams' rotations. So you just add up those numbers. The Astros are about six projected wins ahead of the Rangers. So six wins is good, right? The big but here is what I said about you know trying to project young players. The Rangers, if you remember from the LCS, and I just try to remember the first six games of the LCS. Um, the Rangers had this excellent rookie left fielder, Evan Carter, who made his major league debut in September. Wasn't even on their uh, uh, September call up December 1st. I think he made his debut on the 11th. And he was great. The projections are he won't be that great. Part of that is he had a high, he seemed to have a lot of balls, find gaps uh, for singles that, you know. He had a Jeremy Pickett year. Yeah, right. But if he's actually as good as we saw, including he was an excellent playoffs and in the end of the regular season, the Rangers got the fourth pick in the draft last year, and they picked an All-American from Florida named Wyatt Langford, who went got into the minor leagues and looked just as good in the minor leagues. And there are lots of projections, including the Zips projection says he's going to be the second best hitter on the Rangers after Corey Seager. And then they put in their formulas and say, and then we get 400 at-bats. I got to tell you, if he's the second best uh, hitter on the Rangers, he's getting 600 at bats. 
So there are a couple different players where you look at for the Rangers and like, yeah, they could really exceed their pro projections without, you know, doing a lot of real sort of like detail thought. And if that happens, those are the scenarios in which the Rangers exceed the Astros in 2024. Andy, what do you think about all this? How much do you take this into account? Does it, I know, I know it all sort of goes out the window March 30th, but do you, does it at least give you a little bit of uh solace as we sort of look for anything to, to feed our baseball habits since all of our NFL teams are no longer playing? Um, I mean, I don't know about solace. I, I appreciate the numbers. I appreciate the analysis uh, projections are as good as the final results at the end of the year. So it's interesting to talk about. Um, and I think Zips, uh, from what I understand, this projection system more than some others has had some fairly reliable, tangible results to back up kind of their methodology. And I know they tweak things as they go along. Um, I think, you know, it feels right. It felt last year like the Rangers were overperforming at a lot of positions. And they did what baseball teams do in the playoffs. They got hot at the right time and won the World Series. And you see that happen all the time. Yeah, they were uh, ice cold. They were yeah, ice cold. did in 2022. Yeah, they were, they were awful it, in September. We, we, we've, we've benefited from that mm -hmm. in the past. Um, it, you know, it's interesting to me when you talk about players and trying to project rookies, because I think that's still the hardest, hardest thing to do is hit a baseball in the major leagues. It, it just is. And it doesn't matter how good a player was at Florida. Um, one of the interesting things, Brian, maybe you can explain. I'm wrong. But with Langford, if they're projecting him to have 400 at-bats and you're saying if he's the second-best hitter, he's going to have more, that means he he's an infielder, yes? so He's an outfielder. Oh, he's an outfielder. So he's replacing Adolis because um, he's a corner outfielder. He's not he, – Yeah. So he's a place, replacing Adolis or Evan Carter. So, or, they're, or they're DH. No, but my point is that yeah. there's some subtraction that has to happen for him to get 400 at bats, even much less 600. Um, so I, I'm a little interested in how that would shake out. And the Rangers should be a good team, um, but I don't think they're a 90 win team this year, um, just because I don't think it's likely that everybody on their roster up and down the lineup is going to overperform at the level they overperformed last year. I think at some point you're going to start seeing Simeon uh, especially drop off a little bit. And you saw it in September and he struggled in October, um, except for one game against us where it mattered. Uh, Adolis Garcia. Um, He's older than you think. He, he, yeah. I mean, it, it was interesting to me that I'm reading about Adolis Garcia. I'm also reading that it, Major League Baseball is investigating the Dominican aging issue again. Um <laughs> I'm actually reading a stupid Twitter argument where somebody said that uh, Adolis Garcia is an MVP. Altuve has, I'm uh, sorry. Uh, Altuve is a good player. Adolis is a superstar player. Yeah. So that's Jay Luna. And I don't want to give him, you know, a, a shout out, but he is. I appreciate, that he watched, I appreciate that he watched seven baseball games last year. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> right. he, he is monumentally historically an idiot from what I can gather on that app. And he's proud of it. Um, wallows in his ignorance greatly also pays oh, attention go. to the cowboys up until i guess september of last year so i mean i, I think it's all it's all fun to talk about like, obviously the games matter more than what this the projections say that are going to happen I, I feel good about where the astros are i'd still like us to get a better le, a better handle on left field slash center field 
um, than what the current plan is, but maybe there's more there. Um, I think the bullpen's in a very good place. I think you're going to have to rotate guys out. Um, I, know, I know we didn't have Hector Neris on the agenda necessarily, but um, it, it's a guy at who's going to go into his age 35 year uh, having a career year. Generally, you don't give three-year deals to that guy. And just because he signed for one year in Chicago doesn't mean he offered that same deal to Houston, which is something Astros Twitter seems to not understand that it takes two parties to enter into a contract. Um, our rotation to me is the biggest question. Um, I, I don't know what we're going to get out of the rotation. To Brian's point in the Zips thing, uh, the biggest surprise to me is how much they value Framber Valdez and how shaky all of us are on Framber Valdez uh, because the second half of the year was not good. And if it wasn't mechanical, then it's mental. And how do you fix that? Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I, I think the Astros will despite the fact that we have probably seven or eight guys that we think are going to start games for us this year, I think the Astros will be in the market for another starter at the trade deadline. I will, I will say this year, the Rangers rotation is even shakier. Oh, sure. The they is, they've got you know, injury, they've got injuries. Now the thing that may happen with the Rangers is they've got three guys, uh, Max Scherzer, Jacob deGrom, Tyler Malley, who they project to come back later in the year. So it could be the rotation is really solid in August and September and walking into October. And the Astros, of course, have Lance McCullers and Luis Garcia. So, you know, uh, relying on Lance McCullers is a, a dubious proposition. Um, but uh, we've, we've gone through that before. Um, so, again, you know, similar sort of similar sort of issues on both teams, but I think sort of starker ones on the Rangers, including if they suffer some injuries to the rotation at the beginning of the year, I'm not sure where they go. The Astros are at least deeper right now. They've got six healthy arms walking into spring training for the rotation. So again, I think they can make that work better than the than the Rangers. But again, I guess the other sort of point I'll make here is part of I think uh, was sort of making me think about sort of writing this is the consensus I think among baseball people is the AL West is going to be very even and the numbers and, and other projections show this too show the Astros with an advantage and so I think that's worth sort of noting uh particularly as you know you're going to see lots of uh lots of baseball predictions particularly from people who only pay attention in October that the Rangers are going to win uh the AL West they very well could. I've tried to cover that sort of uh, well, but the Astros would be the favorite entering the season. And clearly, that too. clearly, the goal is the Astros need to get up about eighteen games and just coast in the regular season before oh, please before Degrom and Scherzer come back. From from your lips to God's ears. Hey, before we close it out though, uh, Andy, you brought up Naris. Um, I think he signed for less than I know. Brian, you said he signed for less than what you expected. Does that show a depleted or a depressed reliever market? And could that maybe mean a reunion on a one-year deal with either Stanek or Maton to help strengthen the sort of beginning or the early the, the, the early depth of that bullpen? We'll start with Brian, then Andy. Yeah, he signed actually for less than David Robertson signed with the Rangers, which I find surprising both from a, which one you'd value more and also from the choice the Rangers made. So 
hopefully that uh, hopefully that's helpful to the Astros' interest. I expected her to get a two-year guaranteed deal. It's a one-year plus an option, which was really sort of complicated, um, and expecting to sign for a little bit more sort of cash. Um, I don't expect the Astros to sign another reliever at this point. My sort of reading between the lines is is they decided after Graveman got injured, okay, we definitely got to get another reliever. And they said, well, if we're going to get another reliever, if we're going to pay the tax on this, do we want a mid-level guy or do we want to get the best guy we can get? And so I think it was one reliever. I think they went for that. They've got, um, I don't expect to, uh, again, I don't expect a reunion with Stanek or Maton or any of the other free agent relievers. Andy, anything for you on that? Yeah, I mean, I think your your reading between the lines is exactly what Dana Brown said during the press conference. It, it, when they realized that Graveman was going to be out, it became a seventy two hour sprint of instead of pissing around trying to get a middle guy and hope that it's going to work out, why not go get the best guy we can go get? And it happened to work out with Hater. Um, it'd be interesting to see what would have happened if he not worked out with Hater. Um, but I, I think realistically the bullpen's in good shape I, I expect montero to be the montero we saw for about three months of the year the good three months and not, not the bad three months um I, I really can't count on forrest whitley but there's you, you've got to like that story i mean just from a perseverance standpoint yeah and, and if if he works out he is filthy um and in short spurts where he doesn't have to hold things back and try to manage innings I, I mean that's that's a pretty deadly weapon if he can stay healthy uh, and then you've got a lot of options of guys who have pitched with success in the major leagues walking around camp in a couple of weeks so i you know i think the bullpen is something that's always a, a thing that you manage throughout the season we saw um past gms rebuild bullpens completely on the fly and I'm sure Dana Brown has that capability but I think with Abreu, Presley and Hader at the back end there's less of a rebuild that would be necessary you know barring some sort of health issue um, so I think the bullpen's in a good spot and I don't think going back to the well for a whoopee like Matan er, even though he wasn't all that great all the time or uh, Stanek especially uh, threw really fast but the underlying numbers never really supported what you thought you were looking at. Um, get long hair though. It's very fancy. You know, we missed out on Travis Jankowski. So um, we've got another <laughs> long haired blonde guy. Um, but I, I think the bullpen as it is, is they're going to break camp with, or they're going to go to camp with what they have and see what pieces they put together. But I think that there'll be a, there'll be a couple of guys that shuttle back and forth between um, Sugarland and Houston short shuttle. They take the bus. Um, and Metro's got a line that runs right they do. They get that little train thing. Uh, no, the train only works to downtown and into the stadium for some reason. We spent a lot of money on that because Houston, um, no flood control, just bus, just trains to nowhere. But I, I think the team's in a good place. Um, I'd still, you know, like we've all talked about, like to see a left handed bat get picked up somehow. Dana Brown's talked about it. I don't know that it happens. Um, I do get freaked out when our fan base keeps calling Jim Crane greedy despite all evidence to the contrary. Yeah. Uh, or cheap. You brought up a good point, too, that, that Naris might not have taken the deal with Houston that he took with Chicago. Like, Well, I, I, it's an interest. I think there's just this lack of understanding, and you're a fan of your team, so, okay, I'm a fan of my team. Why wouldn't a player want to play there? Well, Hector Naris clearly would 
was willing to play for the Cubs for $9 million for one year with an option. But there's no knowledge that anybody on Twitter has that Hector Neris's representation went back to the Houston and said, hey, we'll do one year for nine. Can you do that? We don't know that that offer was ever passed back to Houston. So this idea that, well, we wouldn't even match that, Crane's cheap, is a straw man that doesn't even work because you have no knowledge that it ever happened. You assume it happened and you assume every player who's a free agent, and I'm guilty with this with a lot of teams, um, want to play for your team. Some players don't. He might have really liked playing for Dusty, and once Dusty was gone, it's not that big a draw. And that's just a made-up scenario, but it's just as made up as the idea that <laughs> Hector Neris didn't take a $9 million contract from Houston or Houston wouldn't have offered one. Because $9 million in today's baseball is not, not that much. Yeah, two quick things. One is he's closer to being the closer in Chicago oh, yeah. than he would have been in Houston. So that may have influenced his decision. Just a general point about the bullpen. They've added a number, three guys on the 40-man roster, uh, Dylan Coleman, Oliver Ortega, Declan Cronin, and four guys on minor league contracts with uh, big league experience, mostly in a let's throw some stuff on the wall and one of these guys could work out. And they're going to have some spots on the 40-man roster uh, at the end of spring training when McCullers and Garcia go on the 60-day IL. Um, so... Yeah, one of those people. If they if they're if they're good in spring training, if they've developed a new pitch or made a tweak over the off season, if things work out much better with the Astros player development than they did in other places, hey, you could have something there. You also gave up some waiver claims and you know a hundred thousand dollars signing bonus, which is literally no money uh, in baseball. So there's almost no risk on any of these guys, and um, you know so. Hopefully, some of them. Uh, hopefully, somebody works out, and we say, "What a genius move by uh, by Dana Brown to get Declan Cronin." Is that a real name? <laughs> Sounds like. I mean, at one point, that was our offseason acquisition was Declan Cronin. So, yeah. Well, I think yeah, I, th I think you're right. I think the stupid straw man of of Crane is cheap is just it's it's the laziest take in sports. Um, what's not lazy though, are, is this show and you two guys, we'll be back next week. We'll be doing things a little bit different. Uh, we're going to be doing a live stream of the show and then obviously posting it as a podcast afterwards. Keep an eye on your favorite baseball team. Gentlemen, we will see you soon. Ghost Rose.